Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. My guest in the latest Read All About It podcast is Martin Gregg, who has been and continues to be a man of many professional guises, a journalist, a writer, a publisher and a podcaster. An award-winning journalist, Martin also wrote the excellent sports book The Zen of Naka, which tells the story of Celtic's Japanese midfielder Shunsuke Nakamura, while he also co-wrote a great football novel, The Road to Lisbon, with Charles McGarry, telling the story of Celtic's 1967 European Cup triumph. In 2009, Martin co-founded Backpage Press with the aim of publishing high-quality sports writing and the company has been true to their mission statement ever since, bringing out a number of superb sports books over the past 10 years. These include Barca, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World, biography of Italian footballer Andrea Pirlo, I Think, Therefore I Play, Moonwalker, Adventures of a Midnight Mountaineer, the baseball book Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All, and Pep City, The Making of a Super Team, which tells the story of Pep Guardiola's first three seasons in charge of Manchester City. Podcasts also play a part in Backpage Press's output. They're behind the highly successful Big Interview series with journalist and writer Graham Hunter, while the Behind the Lines series features interviews with the authors of great sports writing. Martin, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. We're here to talk about books and your, your taste in books, but just even... You know, as I say, a man of many professional guises and uh, always been books, writing and, and publishing that you've been involved in professionally for many years now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always had a passion for for books and, and, and writing. I remember doing work experience when I was a budding journalist and a, a guy who was the kind of boss of the, the company that I was, I was working at said to me, do you want to be a sports writer or a sports reporter? Uh, which I thought was a great question, and I decided that I wanted to be a sports writer uh, rather than a reporter. And um, I think probably my career in journalism gravitated more towards the writing side than the reporting side. And probably the the extension to that would be you know writing a book, which I eventually did with the the Nakamura book, and then you know going full on for the for the publishing, and then starting the company in two thousand and nine. So um, yeah, definitely writing books long form. That's always been my passion. I'm interested. You know, if you, you go into the Backpage Press's website, and I know it was it was this love of particularly American sports writing, which is considered in a, a much higher vein than perhaps it is in, in the UK. That was a motivation. But it's interesting that sport, a sports writer is a certainly a, a profession and a, and a career over in America that's very much revered and, and respected. Yeah, I mean, it's a much more celebrated um, form over there. And if you go, you know, if you look at the New York Times and you'll very often see sports books reviewed in the in the art section and the book section. You you rarely see that in the UK. In fact there's hardly any platforms for uh, book reviews, sports book reviews in the UK, and uh, which is quite sad. Four four two I've got a, a very small column on it, but apart from that there's there's really very little. So um yeah, the American sports writing's always been a passion of mine, um, since I started reading guys like David Halberstam back in the day. And even up until till recently, um, I was having a conversation with my business partner last week about our sports books of the year, and, and my sports book of 2019 would be by Wright Thompson, the great ESPN um, sports writer. It's called The Cost of These Dreams, which is like a compilation of his his writings throughout the years. 
you know, big long form essays on Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan and really, really fascinating subjects he takes on and, and, and sometimes spends months, if not years, doing doing these set pieces and building up a profile of the person and really getting under the skin of the subject. And that to me, you know, elevates it above so much so much else that's that's out there in terms of the, the sports writing canon. And it's still, yeah, American sports writing is definitely still my passion. Because I sometimes think, certainly a lot of publishers and, and a lot of, you know, whether it's magazines, newspapers, or even book publishers, miss a trick with, with sports writing. Because there is, I mean, as you've, your company's proved it, I think of some of the, the books that were produced of Hugh McIlvany's great writings in the past. There is a market for, because, you know, people who like sport like to, to read about it and they also appreciate good writing. And I, I think sometimes it's, a lot of publishers go for the, the quick fix, the you know, the autobiography of who's the, the latest sports person in, in the news rather than maybe going a wee bit deeper and delving a wee bit deeper into the stories behind that? It's definitely harder to market those type of books and I think the market has become more mainstream in the last 10 years. I think it's a bit of a crowded marketplace as well. I mean, there's much more sports books being published now than when we started the company so it's quite hard to get your voice heard and if the book is not a kind of high profile autobiography or or hinged around a big branded football club or a big branded player then it's harder to to kind of tell the story of the book and the publicity so you know I think it's really hard but I mean we published a book this year called Astro Ball um, which is about the Houston Astros baseball team Um, but it's really about how they found this model to meld human judgment and analytics and it's like the the kind of next phase of the money ball story which was purely about analytics and how all the old scouts get cleared out in favour of the data. So these guys found a way to, to bring them both together. And, and it was just a fascinating story, which obviously transcended baseball and not just extended into professional football and other sports, but also business as well. I mean, it was a fascinating subject. So we hummed and hawed for a long, long time about whether to actually publish that book in the UK because, you know, could we find a marketplace for a inverted commas baseball book? But, yeah. you know, we printed 1,500 copies and we've got, that was in July and I think we've got 200 copies left and for us that's a that's a success you know I feel like we've landed that book to some extent and that proves that there is a market for that type of book and you know hopefully it will continue to sell going into the future and obviously sports writing as you, you say is maybe a professional passion as well and obviously you read a lot but in terms of your, your choices today I think it kind of gives people a sense of, of the fact you're wider read and you're wider literary interests and, and if we go back right to the to the very first question in this podcast which is your your favourite book from childhood and you, you've given me a, a couple of, of options here yeah we I mean the ones that really stick out from, from my childhood through adolescence would be the Adrian Mole books um, Secret Diary of Adrian Moore and Any Growing Pains and they were really big books for me um, and still are to this day to be honest I think they're the type of books that children and adults can both in, enjoy which I think is quite a rare thing actually it's quite a hard trick to pull that off but I, I mean I, I reread the book uh, The Secret Diary a couple of years ago and I thought it was fantastic I just absolutely loved it um, I just love the the kind of dysfunctional family um, this dysfunctional mole family it reminds me a bit of like Gregory's Girl where it's just kind of these slight oddballs and, and uh, they're kind of knocking about in this house and they're slightly at odds with each other but um, I, I just love the the kind of sense of, of oddity that they brought to the whole proceedings. So um, the social commentary was great as well because it was written at a time, you know, where obviously Thatcher's Britain and Sue Townsend, the author, is, is 
is commenting on you know what's going on in society through the character of Adrian, which you thought was brilliant as well. Um, I always thought he's a really interesting character. Um, I think he's kind of been cast as a bit of a sort of geeky character and a bit nerdy, but I, I never really found him like that. I always thought he was he had the kind of um, broader appeal, and he was not not cool. He's not he wasn't a cool guy, but he you know he was he was interested in politics, he was interested in what was happening in the wider world, he was like chasing girls, he eventually got a girlfriend, Pandora and it, to me he was always a more rounded character than, than than just a kind of nerdy teenager that stayed in his bedroom all the time so um, his interactions with the, the, the kind of wider world was kind of what made the book really work for me. I mean, do you think, I mean I always think the title tells you maybe a wee bit about the fact that he's kind of slightly strange because the first one is The Secret Diary of Adrian Moe, age 13 and three quarters, which <laughs> yeah. tells you that kind of the way he, those idiosyncrasies. But do you yeah. think maybe it obviously became a, a popular TV series as well? That that helped shape people's idea of, as you say, because he's portrayed on screen as maybe a bit more nerdy, that it doesn't quite reflect what you saw in, in the books. Yeah, I think you very often find that with you know ad- TV adaptations or film adaptations that they kind of you lose some of the nuance in the character, and I think that definitely happened. Um, but I just thought it was I, I thought it was a really funny book as well, or books um, because I love both of them equally. I, I didn't really follow the series through to its conclusion, where you know I think. Um, Sue Townsend took him right into his 40s but I didn't follow it that far but I thought those two books were hilarious uh, in particular some of the poems in the book which gives you a great insight into his kind of the kind of mind of a 13 year old boy and so one of them is like a poem to his girlfriend Pandora which she writes in the Valentine's card and it is Pandora I adore you I implore you don't ignore me <laughs> which is one of the greatest poems ever written I think um, but uh, there's another one um, which you know reflecting the kind of social commentary thing but through the eyes of a teenager uh, do you weep Mrs Thatcher do you weep do you, we- do you wake Mrs Thatcher in your sleep do you weep like a sad willow on your Marks and Spencer's pillow? Are your tears molten steel? Do you weep? Do you wake with three million on your brain? Are you sorry that they'll never work again? When you're dressing in your blue, do you see the waiting queue? Do you weep, Mrs Thatcher, do you weep? And then he says at the end of the poem, I've sent it to the BBC, I have marked it envelope urgent. <laughs> I can be... Morrissey at the time would have probably been quite proud of those <laughs> Exactly, yeah. But yeah, I just... Every second page there was a laugh out loud moment and I think that's a really difficult thing to pull off and I actually think that can inspire my passion for that type of kind of episodic diary-like narrative because I, I still love books like that and one of my, my favourite books of recent years has been the, the Diary of a Bookseller by Sean Bythel, um who runs the, the bookshop down in Wigton and he just wrote another instalment which is brilliant again and, and I, I reread these books I go back mm. and you know because I just I can't get enough of them uh, these little kind of bite-sized chunks of humour but also maybe there's kind of more stuff lying behind it as well so so yeah th- those two books had a, uh, had a big influence on me and when you were reading that as a teenager was a part of you thinking see if I could find a girl called Pandora then that's me and my Valentine's card sorted exactly exactly <laughs> well she sounded great Pandora you know, she sounded like everything that a 13 year old boy could, could want frankly but yeah I think I think I probably read it at, this, at the same time at the same age as, as Adrian was in the book so um, you know so it just resonated with me so much and that, that sense of being completely driven by your hormones at that age and um, you know it just it really worked for me in that level, but you know, as I say, I read it like 25 years later and I loved it as well, so it's kind of stood the test of time, I think. When you sent your list through one of the other books that you'd mentioned for this 
category was the goalkeeper's revenge by Bill Norton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't read that in a, in a long time, but it was just an interesting. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't many good kind of football books around, really. You know, in that time, there was a lot of comics and and Roy the Rovers and annuals and things like that. And you know, I loved all that sort of stuff, but there wasn't many. Mm. Yeah, things in actual book form, um, and that was that was just one of the ones that that, that stuck out for me. That um, I just thought was a really interesting tale, and you maybe it planted a seed because obviously subsequently went into publishing books on, on football and sports. So. Yeah, and when I just I wasn't familiar with them when I googled them, I just uh, the thing that came up was he he wrote the play Alfie, which was then turned into a film oh, by Michael Caine. So. Wow. So there you are. Yeah. Every day's a school day. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, but I can take you on then after Adrian Moe went to more formative student university to years. Yeah. And obviously, your reading habits changed and you've, you've chosen what I think is, is you know, certainly a, a classic book, but also a classic, certainly, of Scottish literature. Yeah. So it's the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justif- Justified Sinner by James Hogg, which was published in, I think it was 1824. Yeah, that was one of the first books that I read at university. Um, I studied Scottish literature, and I'd, I'd studied some Scottish literature before that. I'd done some Kelman and Gray and Alan Spence and, and various others in, in my sixth year at school, but um, I was pretty new to it. And then suddenly this book landed on me, and I just I couldn't believe the, the kind of scope of it. Um, and I think it was. I think it probably opened my eyes to the possibilities of not just Scottish literature, but literature in general. And I almost couldn't believe that a guy in the 19th century had managed to pull this off. And uh, I still find it staggering to this day. It's a great kind of satire on religious fanaticism. And it, it's, as a subject, it's, it's, it's Calvinism and this idea of predestination of these certain people are the elect. And the whole concept of the book is, is, is satirising this. And, and it's just, it's one of these books that, I've actually only ever read once, but it stayed with me longer than, than anything. So I remember having a conversation with you before about this book, and it was I had never read it, and it was in the back of, of that that I did read it, and I, I found it captivating, but quite unnerving, and quite, yeah. uns, quite unsettling, and, and yeah. I, I think it would, I think I would have to take a big gulp to go back and read it again, because it took me by surprise, the, the effect it had on me. Yeah, absolutely. And also, the, the kind of form of the book is really interesting, because they have these conflicting narratives, there's, there's like the editor's narrative, and then it flips to the, the sinner's narrative. Um, so you get these conflicting sides of the one story. And then I, I love stuff like that because then you can, when you kind of put them together, you can sort of see the gaps in them and you can try and find out where, where the truth is yourself. And yeah. I think that's, you know, that's a great trope in Scottish literature. And I think that, you know, even the idea of the unreliable narrator is a, is a huge, a huge trope in Scotland. And I, I just loved all that. You know, I, I thought it was, um, I thought it was a great introduction to so many of the, the themes that would come up in my readings throughout the years in, in Scottish literature. But yeah, it is an unnerving book. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was at an event two or three years ago and it was on the Scottish Gothic novel and there was there was three authors there and, and we're talking about... It was actually on Halloween and we're talking about the, you know, the kind of scariest books they'd ever ever read and I think I asked a question and, and then of one of the authors and then the author said, well, what's the scariest book you've read? Um, and, and I said, well, it'd be the Justified Sinner. And he was, like, really astonished. And he's like, oh, did you, did you find that scary? And I was like, yeah, I found that, like, yeah. really unnerving. There was two or three scenes in that which still stay with me to this day. It's very rare that you find a book that has that effect. Yeah. But it's obviously, 
when you mentioned the fact it was early 19th century it was written, but obviously it had a profound effect on subsequent writers in yeah. that century, but beyond mm. in terms of having read it, and you mentioned earlier the scope of, of what's possible from a writer, a Scottish writer, and I, I think it's, sometimes I think it's maybe, I don't know if it's as well known as it should be in terms mm. of where it should stand in the canon of Scottish books. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of, one of the amazing achievements for me was the way that it kind of paralleled the kind of supernatural elements to the book against the psychological and, and how in some ways you could read some of these occurrences in the book as supernatural but also it's really a portrait of madness uh, of a man's descent into madness and the psychological deterioration of this character which was one of the things that kind of blew my mind because this is like early 19th century, probably 150 years before anyone's talking about mental illness yeah. um, in any kind of real terms, but this this author managed to capture something of it quite profoundly. So uh, the fact that you could look at look at it from both these these points of view, to me, was just a, an amazing achievement. So if you're thinking of, of reading the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner, just be warned it might unnerve you. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned about TV adaptations of, of Adrian Mole, and, and this justified sinner is kind of the great un, unfilmed Scottish novel, and I think there's been various attempts. I think Bill Douglas spent 20 years writing the script and then actually passed away before it came to fruition. Ian Rankin had a go at it nine or ten years ago, but that project seems to have disappeared, so... Um, it's quite a visual book in some ways. There's an incredible scene in Arthur's seat, which you, you might remember. Yeah, um, and yeah, I feel, but almost now with with the way that the TV and film is developed, you can, you can almost see it as like a like a Netflix series or something like that. It's quite episodic in a way. Yeah, because I always wonder that if because certainly they're always looking for content that they maybe and I know they have gone into literature and, mm-hmm. and you know again it's maybe just needs somebody like this podcast to. To herald it, and uh, hopefully we may get, get a commission if it is. Yeah, let's, get, <laughs> it is let's give give Crystal one a call <laughs> and get him onto the job. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, the writer and publisher, Martin Gregg. And we're on to the third question, Martin, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And before you tell me what it is, I, I can just uh, say to everybody who's listening that you've recommended this book to me before, and it is just amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say amazing. That's That's really high praise and I think it deserves that it's called An Exquisite Sense of What is Beautiful by J. David Simons um, so I would like to tell a little bit of the backstory to this book um, because it's quite personal and I think it kind of relates into to kind of my passion for it as well so J. David Simons or David as I would call him, I think he uses the initial J for you know his writing pseudonym but um, David Simons really interesting life, worked as a lawyer Worked in a university in Japan for years. I think he stayed in a kibbutz in Israel actually for a few years and really, really interesting guy. But uh, Glasgow born and bred actually, but eventually found his way back to Glasgow in about 2008. Uh, and I met him at a kind of literary night which started round about then. And I remember going along for the first or second meeting, and there was only about seven or eight of us there. And chatted to David there and he, he had just got a deal with a kind of small independent publisher to publish his first book um, which was called The Credit Draper so when the book came out 
I remember going along to the I Write Book Festival and I got David to sign a copy and I was just about to go travelling at that point. I'd quit my job at the Herald and I bought this round the world ticket and I was, the first stop on it was Japan and because I'd published this book in Shunsuke Nakamura which came out in the UK the previous year but they'd sold the Japanese rights so it was coming out in Japan in about March 2009 so I made Tokyo my first stop in the kind of round the world tour so anyway David was saying oh you know Japan's amazing and he, he told me some some stories about it and some tips of places to go and anyway so I put this this book The Credit Draper in my bag and um, my rucksack and forgot about it for three months and then I think it was in I was in Melbourne maybe and I dug it out and I started reading it with a bit of trepidation because I really liked David and I thought what if I don't like it and then within about three pages I was like this guy's brilliant a fantastic writer and I loved it and but anyway came back to Glasgow and we, we started chatting about what else he was working on and he kept mentioning this this Japanese novel that he was working on and he was saying oh, and you could tell that he's, he's not a boastful man at all but you could tell that he was really proud of it and the way it was kind of coming together and I just couldn't wait to read it, so you know, bought it as soon as it came out, and it just blew me away. Um, I think as a kind of evocation of the the Japanese spirit, it just it was just beautiful. And you know, obviously having spent a bit of time in Japan through the research for Nakamura and then the launch for Nakamura, and then been back two or three times since then. So I, you know, I was really quite into Japanese culture at that point, and and the spirit, the Japanese spirit, and he just captured it so beautifully in this book. But it's split between London and Tokyo. I think it's set in the kind of early 50s. Um, and, and the central character, Edward Strathairn, is actually quite an unlikable character. And I think that's a great skill as a writer. If you can pull that off where you can make an, an unlikable character, you can make him empathetic. You know, you, yeah. can, you can draw empathy from the reader and, and still carry somebody through 300 pages, which he did. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a great... A great trick to pull off, but I just thought the standard of writing was amazing. I thought the story was amazing. I thought the ending was amazing. It's got an incredible ending. And again, we were talking about before we recorded about perspective, and it's hard when you're quite close to a subject or a book or a person. It's hard to get a perspective on how good it is. But I remember thinking this is this is one of the best books I've ever read. Mm-hmm. And if this was on the Booker shortlist, it would thoroughly deserve to be there. In fact, I think it's better than some of the books that, that reach the Booker shortlist. So I think commercially, I think it did quite well for David and I think he probably made a bit of money out of it and certainly he got some critical acclaim, but I don't think it ever maybe caught the wave of, of you know some of these books that go on to, to great success, but I, th- I just think it's amazing. You know who that idea of judging a book by its cover, which I, I do, I think it covers us, and you'll know obviously more than me how important a cover can be, but if ever you want to judge a book by its title an exquisite sense of what is beautiful I would have been so disappointed if I hadn't loved this book because the title in itself is just it just makes you want to read yeah. the book and as you say in terms of writing the, the writing is just is absolutely stunning and it's just you're there you're in that story and, and it's one of those books you get it very rarely where you just no matter else what's going on you just you have to just keep reading that book yeah, I mean, you're right, the, the, the cover is beautiful. It's like these carp swimming about and then the, the typography is, is beautiful. And you're right, if you're going to have that title, then you want to do it justice. And I remember speaking to the publisher, actually, um, which was a, a Glasgow-based publisher called Saraband, um, who quite like my own company, they're like a small independent publisher. Uh, and the head of the company was saying that she had spent quite a bit of money on this cover and uh, you know I, I'm not saying it was money they didn't have but it was probably a bigger expenditure than they would usually but they what she wanted to do the, the the book justice by really making the cover special and I think 
I think it is. It's a special cover. It's a special book. And you you said you touched on it. The, the pressure of reading a book by someone you know, a friend, and and obviously you're still you know people will give you books that they've written, and they'll still expect some sort of critique of it. But it's it's an added pressure for you as a reader because as you say you, you desperately want to to love a book because you the person is your friend, and, yeah. that, and obviously it helps if that comes together. Yeah. Absolutely. So it was great to be able to say to David, you know, I, I absolutely adore this book and I, I'm a, a little bit sorry for him in, in the sense that I think it should be more successful. I think it's, that it's so good that it should be more successful. And I think it's really accessible as well. It's not it's not one of these kind of highbrow books that you should be seen to be reading. Or anything. I think it's like, you know, it, it's really, I mean, I've, I've, I've recommended it to so many folk and they've come back to me with the kind of the passion that you showed for it as well. And also, so I think it's quite cinematic as, yeah. as well. With, you know, yeah, it is. You know, because it's such a the part of it is set in the, the mountains outside Tokyo yeah. in this this incredible hotel. Which actually, I reread the book about a month ago, and I actually looked up the the hotel that it's kind of based on. And there's a little kind of promo video on, on YouTube of, you know, where Dave is talking about the book, and then they cut to these stills of the hotel. So I looked up the hotel, and it's actually closed. I think it was impacted by the recent earthquake and it doesn't open until um, midway through 2020 so it's actually closed at the moment but it just it just looks incredible and I'd love to go to that I'd love to do a little pilgrimage yeah. to that hotel um, but yeah it's set in that incredible landscape and also split between London and Tokyo I think yeah you're right it could work really well cinematically so so that's another one that another to, to one. Get, in, <laughs> get in touch with us uh, Crystal if this, if any of this comes off, Chris Dolan will, will, will love us for a I know, exactly. Yeah, we're setting them up here, aren't we? We're on to uh, question four, and uh, this is a book you couldn't be paid to read again, and I have to say I'm quite, I'm quite pleased with your choice. Right, okay. Good. I'm glad you are. Right, it's called Stoner by John Williams, and which is it's a really interesting book with a really interesting story because it was published, I think it was published in, yeah, it was published in the 60s. John Williams was a, a US academic and he brought this book out to no great fanfare. I think it sold okay, but nothing major. Uh, and then this vintage edition popped up in 2003 and it kind of trundled along and didn't really sell very much in the English language. But then it had this great success in France. The sales really exploded in France and it alerted all these other European publishers to, to what was going on and, and they kind of bought the rights to it. And then... It subsequently became a bestseller in 2013 in the UK. And somebody recommended it to me and I thought, yeah, that sounds right up my street. And I was just uh, I was just so disappointed in it. I just thought it was it was well written. I didn't think it was spectacularly well written, by the way. Um, but I thought it was it was well written, but just couldn't get past the, the sheer bleakness of it. Page after page after page. It's just a kind of breakdown of this guy's suffering and how his life is taking bad turn after bad turn so I think it's one of these books that like the story behind it kind of drove some of the success of it because it was this kind of gem that had been uncovered and mm. you know suddenly you know this book from the 60s is echoing through the, the years and you know there's big articles in the Guardian Julian Barnes was you know big chin stroking pieces on it and stuff like that so I almost think it was like the, the story behind the story was part of, of why it enjoyed this Renaissance, but I just I couldn't get down with it at all, and I finished it, and I just thought, you know, 
that was a real struggle getting to the end of that. So anyway, when I was doing a little bit of research for this podcast, I had a look in Amazon. I thought, I wonder if anyone else shares my views. Now, the the vast majority of reviews on Amazon are pretty good. I mean, I think it's got like four and a half stars out of five. But I always look at the three-star reviews because I think they're the, you know, even for our own books, by the way, I think they're always the fairest. And the five stars are just people that are, you know, in love with it or complete fans and the one stars are just haters you know so you want the people in the middle and you always get really measured comments and even with our stuff very often the people that leave three stars you can kind of get on board with what they're saying you go yeah that was something that I was a bit worried about before we published it and then they nail it so anyway I dug out a couple of three star reviews and this is from Jem J-E-M three star review okay I admit it it is well written in fact beautifully written if you like the idea that life is meaningless and we are here pretty much just to suffer and then die, then this is the book for you. If, on the other hand, you enjoy good, well-written literature that has at least a shred of hope, then avoid this at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> and then Mr C.L. Bradley on, Twitter, on Amazon says, A depressing tale of how a weak man wasted his life. <laughs> <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> See, I was always a bit... Afterwards, I, I read it and I probably had the same reaction to it. I absolutely, the, 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 the main character totally infuriated me. You know, sometimes you just want to grab a character and just shake him and you know, just do something different, do something, anything. But I don't know whether because of the hype and you know coming to a book like that, it's so much praise and, and you know so many accolades and everybody seemed to be reading and talking about it. I wonder if I'd read it before that, I might have had a different reaction because I, I don't know if it builds up yeah. with expectations. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I was, I was actually speaking to a mutual friend of ours, Hugh McDonald, about this and I was complaining about the Sally Rooney books, which I've read both of. And I, I thought, well, you know, once you kind of get into her style of writing, you kind of get into the flow of the book and stuff. And, and then I got, I got through both of them and I thought... I thought the first one was better than the second one, but I remember seeing Hugh, I was like, really? I mean, I understand that, you know, it's quite zeitgeisty and all that, but really? And he was like, well, yeah, but that's that's what happens. You know, you just get these books that are zeitgeisty and they're not necessarily everything that you want them to be, but you just have to deal with that. And I think I fell into that trap with Stoner, basically. Yeah. I mean, that, that always happens with, with novels. And I think, I suppose as a novelist as well, you were talking about David Simons and... Maybe his book didn't get the widespread acclaim that maybe deserved, and I suppose every novelist is just hoping for that little bit of magic that just something yeah. clicks, and a, a good book or a great book gets the, the praise and the recognition it deserves. And you know, it's that it's that magic that you, if you knew what to do, then you would you would make a fortune as a, as a publisher yeah. as well. There's some kind of mysterious alchemy that happens um, that allows that to occur. I mean, it's interesting, like, the, the one that was shortlisted in the book or the My Bloody Project. His, yeah, bo- yeah. his Bloody Project? His Bloody Project, yeah. His Bloody Project. Project. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that was that was an interesting one. I, thought was, I think it's good, by the way, but it definitely... Something happened with that book. You know, it was, it was the first kind of crime... Well, whether you would call it crime, I don't know, but it was touched on that genre anyway. Maybe the first of its kind to get on the book or shortlist, and it got a lot of heat from that, and... Again, the form of it was quite similar to, to Justified Sinner with these different narratives and he played around with that a little bit and it was a really good tale. Uh, and I think th- there was some kind of alchemy that happened with that book and I think that actually outsold the book that won yeah, the booker yeah. that year. So yeah, sometimes you just kind of need something 
to happen that you're not in control of. Because I always think his, that example of that book is, I think, a great example for every writer. And I remember in, in my job as a Celtic View editor, we once interviewed Barry Fratelli, who's the bass guitarist in the band The Fratellis, and they had Chelsea Dagger was their big hit. You know, it was, it was phenomenal at the time, and they've been going for 10 years since then, and they haven't quite got that level of success. But he says every, t- every day they go in the studio, they all think this could be the day we write the best thing ever. And I think, excuse me, with the, the example of Graham McRae Burnett, I think for any writer, you always think that what you're writing or what you're publishing, this could be the thing that takes me to a different level because you just don't know that it just takes one person to read it and go, do you know what, that's, that's a brilliant book and one recommendation leads to another and as you say, something, the alchemy of, of publishing or, or reading or, or whatever, and, and it suddenly explodes. That's, I cling on to that hope. Yeah, yeah. I still don't quite understand the stone, I think. <laughs> Even the story behind the story is is quite interesting, but I still don't quite get it, and I don't think it's it's good enough to have justified um, the hype that it got. No, I'm I'm absolutely with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we come to the the last question, and it's the either the last book that you've read or the book that you're you're currently reading. Yeah, so the book I'm reading just now is Cider with Rosie by Laurie Wee which I've had for a couple of years, and I've just not got into reading. A friend of mine bought me it, and I really enjoy writing kind of rooted in, in the natural world and I think my friend obviously tuned into this because it's a very kind of evocative novel set in this kind of small Cotswold village and you know there's a, there's a lot of writing about the changing of the seasons and, and the climate and all that sort of stuff and but anyway I, I finally picked it up about a month ago and I've been kind of chipping away at it and when I say chipping away I don't mean that in a negative sense because I think it's the sort of book that is so laden with beautifully descriptive language that yeah, it forces you to slow down and read it properly and, and just get all the different textures in the in the text. So that's what I've been doing. It's, it's, it's very therapeutic when you, you want to kind of come down after a busy day or whatever and, and it forces you to, to lengthen your attention span. And I think it's great, but the first uh, the first half of the novel is quite... You know, bright and bucolic, and it's, it's lovely. But it really darkens in the second half, and you realise how how tough life was. You know how you know particularly rural life was back then, and you know it's quite it's really quite powerful in in that sense. So I think it's I've not reached the end yet, but I'm really enjoying it. It's kind of different to anything I've read before, and hopefully it will take me down a route of reading more Laurie Lee. I'm really interested in the as I walked out one midsummer morning. It's interesting. Um, we've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast Chris Dolan, who's a writer. We both know him, and he was the, the first guest on the Read All About It podcast. And he, on the back of, he's he's obviously read the those Laurie Lee books, and then he recreated that trip uh, with a couple of friends going over to to Spain. Did a bit of cycling, but also was busking mm-hmm. around Spain as well, and, and was writing a book on on that kind of slightly mirroring that. The journey that, that Laurie Lee takes, and I walked out one midsummer morning and, and walks basically sets off from England and, and goes over to Spain. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. It's funny how things kind of come together to give you a nudge into to picking books up again. And I was actually watching, I was rewatching a series called The Trip, the TV series, uh, The Trip to Spain, with Steve Coogan and Rob Ryan. Yeah. And so the kind of the idea of that is they're they're travelling around doing these restaurant reviews. But the, the character of Coogan in, in the trip is is also trying to write a novel. 
Um, and at various points, he refers to, to Laurie Lee, and he's, he's reading as I walked out one midsummer morning throughout the, the series. So that, that sort of that put it in my head. I thought, well, I'd, I'd quite like to dip into that. And then I remembered that I had Side of Rosie and I hadn't read that, so I thought I'd go back and read that. And then you actually mentioned to me about Chris's book, which I'm, I'm really excited about, actually, because he's such a fantastic writer and he, he he's obviously you know he speaks Spanish and he's, he understands the culture really well and I think I think that'll be a really interesting story from his perspective but I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read I think Chris's book is out in 2020 isn't mm, it at yeah, some point yeah. so I think I might read Laurie Lee and then read Chris Dolan and, and then you know have the comparison yeah there. have the comparison um, I think it'll be you know, 100 years apart or something like that you know roughly but yeah, I think it'll be really be interesting. I think I'll get more out of the experience from like reading the two books side by side. I mean, in terms of your reading tastes, do, do you have a, have a specific taste in terms of, in terms of fiction or non-fiction? Or, you know, particularly given what you do in, in, in your work, do you try and steer away from reading sports books, for example, as, as a way of relaxing? You mentioned earlier on this was a good thing to just maybe relax after quite a hectic day or a hectic time at work. Yeah, I, I do steer away from sports books, actually, which... It's quite challenging because I still feel like I need to keep my hand in with that, but I have to build time into my working day to, to read sport, basically, because, you know, when, when I'm off the clock, you know, it's just it just invades my headspace too much to, to be diving into to sports books. So, um, yeah, I do avoid that, but I'm, I'm quite varied, I would say. I mean, I, I actually try to... I used to read a lot of kind of businessy type books, and I don't read them either because it's quite hard to disengage, like, um, after your work, if you're... you're you're reading about business practices that you think, oh, maybe I could implement that, yeah. and suddenly your your mind's away. So I try not to read too much of that anymore. But yeah, I like I like fiction and non-fiction um, probably equally. I just the book before Side of the Rosie was Malcolm Gladwell's latest, Talking to Strangers, which was fantastic. It's about kind of behavioural economics and really interested in, in in that sort of stuff. But um, but yeah, I usually have a non-fiction and a fiction book on the go at the same time. Yeah, and I mentioned right at the very start the introduction in terms of your own writing. Obviously, there was the the book about Nakamura when he, you know, his, his time here at Celtic. But you also co-wrote the the novel, which is a is a great football novel, telling the kind of twin narratives of the fans going to Lisbon in nineteen sixty seven and the story of Jockstein as well. And have you ever, you know, given you know the the scope of of what you read yourself? Have you ever been tempted to explore some fiction writing again? Yeah, I'd love to, but I just I don't really have the time to do it through running the company and um, my growing family as well. I've got an 18-month-old daughter and I've got another one due in three months, so I just don't really... It's very hard to be creative when you're knackered. <laughs> so uh, I just... Uh, do you know, I was actually thinking about... I was thinking about that. I said I'd love to write more fiction, but I actually think what I might do instead is try and learn more Spanish. I know a little bit of Spanish, but I think that's quite... That's something that you can do quite kind of methodically rather that it doesn't require you know the synapses to be flashing in your brain you know yeah. you can just uh, you can just walk away in it I think I, for this period of my life I think I'm I might do that rather than than, than try and you know fire up the creative engine and, and dread something out I don't really I've got there's one idea that I would quite like to pursue but it just it stretches further and further away uh, when I look at it so um, maybe one day but but not anytime soon and obviously as your, as your family get 
older they grow up, you have kind of certain books in, in, in mind that you'd love to recommend to them when they're as, as you know, as obviously as, as your kids start to discover books as well that you'll you hope to pass on to them. Yeah, I mean I always I always looked at the Harry Potter series and I think, you know, it's become such a an industry, hasn't it, the, the Harry Potter <clears throat> juggernaut. But I think they're really interesting books with nice kind of little moral hearts to them and uh, I'll go back and reread them before I introduce um, my children to them but yeah I, I'm quite excited about introducing them to, to that world and I was in Waterstones in Glasgow last week and the first floor is almost kind of made into this kind of Harry Potter because my, my experience as well with, with my daughter one, one of my daughters is a prolific reader and other people I know whose kids are maybe adults now and, and love books Harry Potter is the has been the key that, that that's mm. what they've a certain age they've engaged in it's their books it's their world and once they've discovered that love of books through that it takes them who knows where in terms of reading which is always a great thing yeah it's good writing as well I mean I've always thought that she was a talented writer and I read a few of her crime novels which she, she also published under the Robert Galbraith yeah. pseudonym and you can tell from that that she's a very talented writer so yeah I think that would be a really interesting one to to explore with them and then once they're old enough then they can start reading all the back page press books as well <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> if they're still in print <laughs> I'm sure they will be but sadly we've come to the end of the podcast Martin it's been it's been a real pleasure I know you and I have often spoke, spoke about books as well so it's been great just to spend some time going through some of your, your favourites and not so favourite books so thanks for joining us in the Read All About It podcast it's been a pleasure thanks very much Paul thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it you can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. <laughs>